from St. John's Gospel, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. I've got a question for you. Ready? You ready? What do you call a man with a rubber toe? Roberto. What do you call a fish with two knees? A two-knee fish. Yeah, they're bad dad jokes. I get it. Didn't see it coming, did you? Well, the folks in today's gospel this morning didn't see this one coming either. Not that Jesus is telling bad jokes. But rather that he talks about this idea of his, on his way to Jerusalem, that his mission is not what they expect. Let me just say this, and I'm, and I'm jumping right into the points for this morning. Let me just say this. The minute that you think Jesus, you've got Jesus Christ figured out, the minute you think you've got this all locked up, the minute you get your MDiv and you graduate from seminary, guess what? Jesus is always throwing you a curveball, man. He's always doing something which has to, by definition, expand your concept of who and what he is. He's always throwing a curveball, whether it's telling a bad joke from a pulpit or telling people that he's going to Jerusalem to die. The point I want you to hear in all that is that Jesus then and now keeps you guessing. Not because he's opaque or deceptive, but because as both man and God, his being, his nature, his mission is far bigger and far more profound than most people give him credit for. So we're going to look at three things today in this uh, text from John's Gospel, which is just awesome. There's so much in here. We could spend weeks on this one text, but I'm going to talk about just three things today. Uh, I want to look about three points from this gospel, and they all have the word mission in them. I'm going to look at Jesus' mission confused, his mission described, and his mission accomplished. So Jesus, I can't say that this morning, Jesus' mission (laughs) confused, Jesus' mission described, and Jesus' mission accomplished. So let me, let me give you a little background, and we're going to jump right into this this morning. So we're actually jumping a little bit ahead in John's gospel, because next Sunday, as you know, is Palm Sunday, where we read about Jesus' walking into the city of Jerusalem, and everybody shouts, yeah, a rock star, there he is, Hosanna, save us. Well, that's next week, but the text from this morning actually jumps a little bit ahead of that, so that In John 12 this morning, Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem, just arrived there, Hosanna and all that stuff. And then he just begins to describe what's going to happen next. I mean, because the crowd, as we'll see next week, is going wild. And the reason they're going wild is Jesus is in Jerusalem. What's he doing there? What do they think he's doing there? They think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do two things— throw out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic monarchy, the Jewish monarchy. They think that Jesus, as the Messiah, would do what they all expected him to do, which was go in, kick butt, throw the Romans out, and reestablish the Jewish nation. Reestablish the Jewish monarchy, which they craved, which they wanted restored, despite Meghan Markle's disdain for the very monarchy that she sponges off of, and I'm not a monarch, well, I am kind of a monarchist, actually. The Jewish nation yearned for a king. They wanted someone, just like we do now, who was in control, who would call the shots. They wanted 
Jesus in the royal mansion at Jerusalem. But Jesus throws him a curveball. He always throws him a curveball. They didn't see it coming. That's my first point. Jesus' mission confused. Look, here's an interesting little nugget in here, and I've spent a little bit of time on it. Jesus, John's gospel says that they arrive in Jerusalem and some Greeks show up. Now, I don't know about you. I don't, I mean, it sounds to me like there's going to be a party going on, right? These are not Greeks per se from Greece. They could be, but it's actually the word, the Greek, the word there for Greek means a non-Jewish proselyte. Somebody who is a non, ethnically non-Jew, but they are going to Jerusalem to worship the Jewish, Jewish God. And they say to Philip, we wish to see Jesus. Now, let me just stop there and just say one thing. He, before we get into this idea of the Greeks, they go to Philip and they say, hey, we want to, see, we want to meet this Jesus guy because we think he's the Messiah, and since we want to worship the Jewish God, even though we're Gentiles, we want to meet this guy who we think is going to change the world. But let me stop there and just turn this around on you for a minute because that's the purpose of the text. God relies on his followers, listen, God relies on his people to bring others to him. And not just then, the person in your seat, God is relying upon the person in your chair to bring other people to him. And let me just ask this, ask this question, who are the people in your life right now who don't know Jesus? Anybody here have friends that are non-Christians? I hope you do. If you don't, you're in the wrong place. Who, who, are, who's, who is Jesus asking you to bring them to him. I'm not saying you got to beat him up or force it. Just make the introduction. Jesus does not need you to sell him. <laughs> you, our job is to make the introduction to him and let him handle the rest. And you know, it might, it might surprise you. My spiritual director in seminary said to me one thing I thought was profound at the time, a little confusing, but profound. He said, look, once you become a Christian, there's only one purpose in your life. And that is, to, well, there's sort of a double-edged sword. Once you become a Christian, the only thing in your life worth doing is bringing others to him. When you become a Christian, it's not about self-fulfillment and religious feeling. No. The gospel and becoming a Christian is about knowing the Lord, being faithful, and bringing others to him. That is what the Christian life is all about. And I will say this, and I'm going to move on. Think about this. Someone said this to me one time. You may be, you may be the only Jesus somebody ever meets. You may be the only Jesus that someone ever meets. So, be ready and willing to bring others to him. And so Philip brings these two non-Jewish Greek, these two, there could have been several, brings them to Jesus and, Jesus, and say, hey, Jesus, want to meet these guys that are Gentiles. You know, they're coming in. They want to learn about this, this Jewish God. They want to learn about the, the Jewish nation. And then Jesus is something very profound in verse 23. He says, the hour has come Listen, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Well, to be glorified, listen, biblically to be glorified means to do what God has called you to do. To be glorified is to do just simply what God tells you to do. I mean, I think, about, think about the happiest people that you know in life. They don't need to be the richest or, or wealthiest or most influential people, but the ones that are the happiest that you know and that I know, are the ones that, frankly, just do what God has called them to do in all different areas of their lives. All different sorts and conditions of men, the old prayer book is to say. I want you to think of the person that you know who is the most well-adjusted, happiest person, secure, at peace. They're not necessarily the most worldly accomplished. They could be. 
but they are always people who do what God has called them to do. Why? Because it gives their Father in heaven glory. And Jesus is glorified, listen, because the Gentiles, the Gentiles are coming to find God. Jesus is glorified because these Gentiles, these non-Jews, have finally seen the light. You know, you may not know this. Most people forget that the Jewish nation in the Old Testament had two big jobs, right? Worship God and bring the Gentiles in. They, f- they did the first one on a good day. The second one, they were never very good at at all. And so when Christ, re- when Christ comes into Jerusalem and the Gentiles arrive, he says, well, now the Son of Man, him, has been glorified. Why? Because he has done in his person what the Jewish nation could never do. And then he says, and then he drops the bombshell. This is the big point for today. He says, truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So here's my second point. The first point is people are confused of what's going on, understandably, but now Jesus explains his mission. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to conquer, yes, but not to conquer the Romans, but to conquer through his death. That's his mission. See, here's the thing. The people of God then and now, because they wanted to put, they wanted to put God on their terms, you know, Jesus, you know, Peter had the same problem. You are the Christ. And I preached on this a few weeks ago. We, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, yeah, Peter, that's right. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, no way, Lord. Forbid that. Here's the problem, you see. Jesus is saying, look, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem, yes. And I am going to conquer, yes. But I'm going to conquer in my, by my death. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to point out something here which is important. And that the reason these people are confused is because they are putting God on their terms. They want to tell God how to do his job instead of just doing what he tells them is the truth. You know, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that is the Greek word, amen. We say, amen. Human beings always put amen at the end of a sentence, right? We pray a prayer, amen. The body of Christ, amen. It means I agree. Jesus is the only human being, the only being in existence who put the word amen in the beginning, he does it twice, which is an emphatic. And what he's doing is he's speaking with the authority of God. So let me just turn this around again on you and ask you a question. Where in your life are you confused, just like they were, right? Where in your life are you confused because you think God should be doing things differently than he is? <laughs> I mean, if he really is a healing, loving God then why didn't you get that new job you wanted? Why aren't your kids being healed when you're praying for them? Why did your marriage fall apart? Why didn't God do what you wanted to do? Remember, and it's confusing, right? We've all done this. It's confusing because we forget an important fact that God is God and we're not. He calls the shots, man. We don't. And if you're confused by the way things are in your life right now in some place, and all of you are, including me, Take heart, you are not alone. But I want to tell you that God knows what he's doing. <laughs> he knows what he's doing, and he's, he can handle it. All our job is to be obedient to what he says and trust in him. Because you know what? Here's the thing. He's got a distinct advantage over us. <laughs> you know, he always does. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, right? So he sees the big picture. You and I, you and I live in the present, right? In the present moment. 
We have a past which influences us. We live in the present moment, and we have the future which hasn't yet occurred. So we plan and worry about it, but we aren't there yet. Well, I got news for you. God's already there. See, if God's already there, and he's got a plan, and you are part of it, and he loves you and, and, and supports you and wants you to be with him, then take heart, man. Even when things are confused, just trust what he says. Remember the big picture. You can't see it, but he can. And you and I are part of it. So Jesus' followers are confused. He's going to die, and he begins to explain to them what's going on. And then he says, look, unless a, a seed falls to the ground and bears much, it, it dies. It, if it does, it bears much fruit. What's that? Well, Jesus is actually using a little bit of a metaphor here, obviously. Uh, I was reminded of a um, situation about four years ago. My daughter, Grace, who's sick today. She couldn't make it. But she, uh, Gracie loves mangoes, right? I think they're disgusting, but she likes mangoes. Okay. And so she ate a mango once, and she took a mango, and I guess you put them in a bucket of water, they'll actually sprout. And she did it, and there was a mango growing on our windowsill until she forgot to water it, and it dried up and died. But the point is, you see, when you take a seed and you plant it in the ground, that's where new life is, comes from. That old seed is, grows up into a new tree and bears fruit. Well, Jesus says, unless this seed falls to the ground and dies, he's talking about himself, frankly, then this, unless that happens, then the new creation will never be born. These new fruit will never come forth. Well, who are these new fruit that are going to be born? They're the people sitting in front of me and the one speaking to you right now. Here's the irony. Here's the, here's the, here's the crazy irony in all this. So I'll get to this next week and, on, and during Holy Week. That Jesus is, in fact, going to Jerusalem to do battle, but it's not with the Romans, but with the devil and his angels and with human sin, both yours and mine. He's going there to die on the cross, to be buried and raised from the dead, so that he can free us from the penalty of our sins, that we might be victorious, that we might be fruit born of his resurrection and his death on the cross in our place. That's why he goes, to pay for our sins and for mine. You can call it ransom theory. You can call it substitutionary atonement. You can call it an example. All these things Christ does to pay for our sins in our place. And they're all theories. Nobody really knows exactly how this works. There's different ideas, and I think they all kind of make some intellectual sense. But the point is, Jesus goes to offer himself in your place and in mine. I'm going to give you an example of a guy that I... Uh, I'm fascinated by a gentleman by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. Anybody know who he is? Maximilian Kolbe is a, was a, uh, he's dead. He's a martyr. He's a priest. He was a Franciscan. And Maximilian Kolbe was in um, Auschwitz during World War II. He was selected at, and he was in this row of, of prisoners in Auschwitz as a, as a priest. They put him in, in, the, in, the, in prison. And out of this collection of people that were there, the, the SS picked a man and said, take this guy out and kill him. For no reason. They just, that's what they did. And so, so Colby says, hey, wait, 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 wait. The gentleman that they picked out of the lineup was a, was a husband with children. And Colby says, wait, 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 wait. Take me instead. I will die in their place. I'm a priest. Hey, look, man, that gives you extra points, right? And so they took, so they said, okay. They took Maximilian Colby and they murdered him on the spot in the place of this man and saved his life and his children. My point is, no matter how Jesus does this idea of paying for our sins and mine, your sins and mine, 
He does it in our place so that you and I can bear fruit. We can live lives of victory and freedom. Not stuck in the past, not stuck in guilt or lack of forgiveness, friends, but being freed from that and moving forward. And then finally we see Jesus, Jesus described, they're confused by what he's doing because they think he's going to go and conquer militarily. He's going to conquer with his death on the cross. He describes how this will work, and then finally we see his mission accomplished. Well, Jesus talks about his death as a metaphor, that a seed falls to the ground and it bears much fruit. And I want you to stop and think about that for a minute because those fruit, friends, are you and me. Jesus says, now, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Satan, demons. Friends, the battle against evil with, with Jesus as our leader, the battle is won. The battle is decided that, that for Jesus, he has conquered sin because he frees us from it. He's conquered death because he's raised from the dead. The battle is won for those who put their trust in him. You know, I, I've, uh, I'm a history guy, so forgive the two World War II stories in one sermon. It's a lot. But I've often thought of, the, of where we are right now as Christians, the Christian life, as kind of like World War II between D-Day and V-Day. If you don't know history, D-Day is when the Americans invaded uh, the French coast, right? D-Day was June 6, 1941. And if you don't know your history, when the Allies launched that invasion, it was pretty uncertain whether or not it was going to be successful. If you know, Eisenhower had actually written a speech admitting defeat if the, if the Allies could not beat, broach the uh, Atlantic Wall. So the invasion was on. It was a bloody fight, as you know. But by D-Day plus one, the next day, everybody knew the battle was over. Everybody knew the war was over. The, the Allies knew it. The Germans even knew it. Hitler was crazed and demonic and couldn't see the, tr- the truth of the matter. But everybody knew on D-Day plus one, once the beachhead was established, it was only a matter of time. Friends, I want you to consider that the Christian life is kind of like that. That now that the victory is secure, the beachhead is established, victory is certain. You know, back then, between D-Day plus one and V-Day, which was, I think, about a year later, a lot of people died. A lot of people suffered. But the end was certain. And I want you to consider that the life in this world now, friends, is sometimes nasty, brutish, and short. But the Christian life is simply this, that ultimate victory is assured, that Jesus has paid for our sins and conquered death, Yes, there will be suffering in this life, just like D-Day to V-Day. People will die, yes. But for the Christian, you see, ultimate victory is assured. So here's my challenge for you this morning. I want you to live lives of victory. I want you to live lives yearning for, waiting for, hoping for Christ's second coming when the final victory will be completed, when the dead shall be raised, when we shall live for eternity with Christ in a new reestablished Eden, where we will live with Jesus in heaven. Friends, that is the Christian hope, that we will always be forward-looking, dealing with the challenges of this life, which are many, dealing with the struggles of this, this life, which are true, but always seeing all of these things through the lens of his return. 
confident, bold, fearless, and hopeful. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his mission, which seems confusing at first, but makes absolute sense once he shows us why he's here. We thank you, Lord, that he came to earth to die on the cross in our place, to to redeem us with you, our Father in heaven, to give us lives of victory and joy and hope and confidence and peace, knowing that victory is assured. Lord, help us to live lives of victory as people who trust in you and your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.